Chapter Ten of The Clue by Carolyn Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Some Testimony. There is nothing to fear," said Mister Benson kindly. "Simply tell us what you heard while sitting there writing that caused you to leave your room." Glancing around as if in search of someone. Cicely finally managed to make an audible reply. "'I heard a loud cry,' she said, "'that sounded as if somebody were frightened or in danger. I naturally ran out into the hall, and looking over the baluster, I saw Mr. Carleton in the hall below. I felt sure then that it was he who had cried out, so I came downstairs.' "'At what time was this?' At half-past eleven, exactly. How do you know so accurately? Because, as I came downstairs, the old clock in the middle landing chimed the half-hour. It has a deep, soft note, and it struck just as I passed the clock, and it startled me a little, so, of course, I remember it perfectly. And then? And then... Cicely again hesitated, but with a visible effort resumed her speech. Why, and then I came on down and found Mr. Carleton nearly distracted. I could not guess what was the matter. He was turning on the lights and ringing the servants' bells and acting like a man beside himself. Then in a moment Marie appeared and gave one of her French shrieks that completely upset what little nerve I had left. "'And what did you do next?' "'I... I went into the library.' "'Why?' Cicely looked up suddenly, as if startled, but after only an instant's hesitation replied, "'Because Mr. Carleton pointed toward the doorway, and Marie and I went in together.' You knew at once that Miss Van Norman was not alive? I was not sure, but Marie went toward her and then turned away with another of her horrid screams, and I felt that Miss Van Norman must be dead. What did Mr. Carleton say? He said nothing. He, he pointed to the written paper on the table. Which you had written yourself? Yes, but he didn't know that. Cicely spoke eagerly, as if saying something of importance. He thought she wrote it. Never mind that point for the moment. But I must now ask you to explain that written message, which you have declared that you yourself wrote. At this, Cicely's manner changed. She became again the obstinate and defiant woman who had answered the coroner's earlier questions. I refuse to explain it. Consider a moment, said Mr. Benson quietly. Sooner or later, perhaps at a trial, you will be obliged to explain this matter. How much better, then, to confide in us now, and perhaps lead to an immediate solution of the mystery. Cicely pondered a moment, then she said, I have nothing to conceal, I will tell you. I did write that paper, and it was the confession of my heart. I am very miserable, and when I wrote it, 
I quite intended to take my own life. When I was called to go to Miss Van Norman in the library, I gathered up some notes and lists from my desk to take to her. In my haste, I must have included that paper without knowing it, for when I reached my room, I could not find it. And then, then when I saw it, there in the table, I... Cicely had again grown nervous and excited. Her voice trembled, her eyes filled with tears, and fearing a nervous collapse, Mr. Benson hurried on to other questions. Whom does that S in your note stand for? That I shall never tell. The determination in her voice convinced him that it was useless to insist on that point, so the coroner went on. Perhaps we have no right to ask. Now, you must tell me some other things, and believe me, my questions are not prompted by curiosity, but are necessary to the discovery of the truth. Why did Mr. Carleton point to that paper? He, he seemed so shocked and stunned that he was almost unable to speak. I suppose he thought that would explain why she had killed herself. But she hadn't killed herself. But he thought she had, and he thought that paper proved it. But why had he need to prove it, and to you? I don't know. I don't know what he thought. I don't know what I thought myself after I reached the library door and looked in and saw that dreadful sight. Oh, I shall see it all my life. At the memory, Cicely broke down again and sank into her chair, shaking with convulsive sobs. Mr. Benson did not disturb her further, but proceeded to question the others. The account of Marie, the maid, merely served to corroborate what Cicely had said. Marie, too, had heard Carlton's cry for help, and throwing on a dressing gown, had run downstairs to Madeline's room. Not finding her mistress there, she had hurried down to the first floor, reaching the lower hall, but a few minutes after Cicely did. She said also that it was just about half-past eleven by the clock in her own room when she heard Mr. Carleton's cry. "'You knew who it was that had called out so loudly?' asked Mr. Benson. "'No, monsieur. I heard only the shriek, as of one in great disaster. I ran to Miss Van Norman's room, as that was my first duty.' Were you not in attendance upon her? No, she had sent me the message by Miss Dupuy that I need not attend her when she retired. Did this often occur? Not often, but sometimes when Miss Van Norman sat up late by herself, she would excuse me at an earlier hour. She was most kind and considerate of everybody. Then when at last you saw Miss Van Norman in the library, what did you do? Mon Dieu, I shrieked. Why not? I was amazed, shocked, but above all, desolated. It was a cruel scene. I knew not what to do, so naturally I shrieked. 
Marie's French shrug almost convinced her hearers that truly that was the only thing to do on such an occasion. "'And now,' said Coroner Benson, "'can you tell us of anything, any incident or any knowledge of your own, that will throw any light on this whole matter?' Marie's pretty face took on a strange expression. It was not fear or terror, but a sort of perplexity. She gave a furtive glance at Mr. Carleton, and then at Miss Morton, and hesitated. At last she spoke slowly. "'If Monsieur could perhaps word his question a little differently, with more of a definiteness—' "'Very well. Do you know anything of Miss Van Norman's private affairs that would assist us in discovering who killed her?' "'No, Monsieur.' said Marie promptly, with a look of relief. Did Miss Van Norman ever, in the slightest way, express any intentions or desire to end her life? Never, monsieur. Do you think she was glad and happy in the knowledge of her fast-approaching wedding day? I am sure of it, and Marie's tone was that of one who well knew whereof she spoke. That is all, then, for the present. And Marie, with another sidelong, curious glance at Miss Morton, resumed her seat. Kitty French and Molly Gardner were questioned, but they told nothing that would throw any light on the matter. They had heard the cry, and while hastily dressing, had heard the general commotion in the house. They had thought it must be a fire and not until they reached the library did they know what had really happened. "'And then,' said Kitty indignantly, in conclusion of her own recital, "'we were not allowed to stay with the others, but were sent to our rooms. So how can we give any evidence?' It was plain to be seen. Miss French felt herself defrauded of an opportunity that should have been hers, but Miss Gardner was of quite a different mind. She answered in whispered monosyllables the questions put by the coroner, and as she knew no more than Kitty of the whole matter, she was not questioned much. Robert Fessenden smiled a little at the different attitudes of the two girls. He knew Kitty was eager to hear all the exciting details, while Molly shrank from the whole subject. However, as they were such minor witnesses, the coroner paid little serious attention to them or to their statements. Miss Morton's testimony came next. Fessenden regarded her with interest, as, composed and calm, she waited the coroner's interrogations. She was deliberate and careful in making her replies, and it seemed to the young detective as if she knew nothing whatever about the whole affair, but was trying to imply that she knew a great deal. "'You went to your room when the others did, at about ten o'clock?' asked Mr. Benson. "'Yes, but I did not retire at once.' "'Did you hear any sounds that caused you alarm?' "'No, not alarm.' curiosity, perhaps, but that is surely pardonable to a naturally timid woman in a strange house. 
Then did you hear sounds? Can you describe them? I do not think they were other than those made by the servants attending to their duties. But the putting on of coal or the fastening of windows are noticeable sounds when one is not accustomed to them. You could discern, then, that it was the shoveling of coal or the fastening of windows that you heard? No, I could not. My hearing is extremely acute, but as my room is on the third floor, all the sounds I hear were faint and muffled. Did you hear Mr. Carlton's cry for help? I did, but at that instant it did not sound loud. However, I was sufficiently alarmed to open my door and step out into the hall. I had not taken off my evening gown, and, seeing bright lights downstairs, of course I immediately went down. The household was nearly all assembled when I reached the library. I saw at once what had happened, and I saw, too, that Mrs. Markham and the younger women were quite frantic with fright and excitement. I thought it my duty, therefore, to take up the reins of government, and I took the liberty of telephoning for the doctor. I think there is nothing more of importance that I can tell you." At this Fessenden barely repressed a smile, for he could not see that Miss Morton had told anything of importance at all. "'I would like,' said Mr. Benson, "'for you to inform us as to your relations with the Van Norman household. Have you been long acquainted with Miss Van Norman?' "'About two years,' replied Miss Morton with a snapping together of her teeth, which was one of her many peculiarities of manner. "'And how did the acquaintance come about?' "'Her uncle and I were friends many years ago,' said Miss Morton. "'I knew Richard Van Norman before Madeline was born. We quarreled, and I never saw him again. After his death, Madeline wrote to me, and several letters passed between us.' At her invitation, I made a short visit here about a year ago. Again, at her invitation, I came here yesterday to be present at her wedding. Miss Morton's manner, though quiet, betokened repressed excitement rather than suppressed emotion. In no way did her hard, bright eyes show grief or sorrow, but they flashed in a way that indicated high nervous pressure. Did you know that you were to inherit this house and a large sum of money at Miss Van Norman's death? The question was thrown at her so suddenly that Miss Morton almost gasped. She hesitated for an appreciable instant. Then with a sudden snap of her strong, angular jaws, she said, No! You had no intimation of it, whatever? No! again that excessive decision of manner, which to Fessenden's mind, at least, stultified rather than corroborated the verity of her statement. But Coroner Benson expressed no doubt of his witness, but merely said casually, "'Yet on the occasion of the tragedy last night, you at once assumed the attitude of the head of the house. You gave orders to the servants.' You took up the reins of management, 
and seemed to anticipate the fact that the house was eventually to be your own. Miss Morton looked aghast. If one chose to think so, she looked as if detected in a false statement. Glancing around the room, she saw the eyes of Kitty French and of Marie, the maid, intently fixed on her. This seemed to unnerve her, and in a broken, trembling voice, almost a whine, she said, "'If I did so, it was only with a helpful motive. Mrs. Markham was so collapsed with the shock she had just sustained that she was really incapable of giving orders. If I did so, it was only from the desire to be of service.' This seemed indeed plausible and the most casual observer would know that Miss Morton's helpfulness could only be accomplished in a peremptory and dictatorial manner. "'Will you tell us why Miss Van Norman chose to leave you so large a bequest when she had known you so slightly?' asked Mr. Benson. Fessenden thought Miss Morton would resent this question, but instead she answered, willingly enough, because she knew that except for my unfortunate quarrel with Richard Van Norman many years ago, the place would have been mine anyway. "'You mean you were to have married Mr. Van Norman?' "'I mean just that.' Miss Morton looked a little defiant, but also an air of pride tinged her statement, and she seemed to be asserting her lifelong right to the property." Miss Van Norman, then, knew of your friendship with her uncle and the reason of its cessation? She learned of it about two years ago. How? By finding some letters of mine among Mr. Van Norman's papers shortly after his death. And in consequence of that discovery, she willed you this house at her death? Yes, that is, I suppose she must have done so, as she did so will it. But you did not know of it, and the reading of the will was to you a surprise? Yes, declared Miss Morton, and though the coroner then dismissed her without comment on her statements, there were several present who did not believe the lady spoke voraciously. Tom Willard was called next and Fessenden wondered what would be the testimony of a man who had not arrived on the scene until more than two hours after the deed was done. And indeed, there was little that Tom could say. Mr. Benson asked him to detail his own movements after he left the house the night before. "'There's little to tell,' said Tom, "'but I'll try to be exact.' I went away from this house about ten o'clock, taking with me a suitcase full of clothes. I went directly to the Mapleton Inn, and although I don't know exactly, I should say I must have reached there in something less than ten minutes. Then I went to the office of the establishment, registered, and asked for a room. The proprietor gave me a good enough room, a bellboy picked up my bag, and I went to my room at once. And remained there? Yes. Later I rang for some ice water, which the same boy brought to me. Directly after that I turned in. 
I slept soundly until awakened by a knocking at my door at about two o'clock in the morning. The message from this house? Yes, the landlord himself stood there when I opened the door and told me I was wanted on the telephone. When I went to the telephone, I heard Miss Morton's voice, and she asked me to come over here. I came as quickly as possible, and— Tom's voice broke at this point, and feeling that his story was finished, Mr. Benson considerately asked him no further questions. End of chapter 10